over the past six months, we have been working through our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful time learning about Christ and the church, who Christ is in relation to the church, and who we are in relation to Christ. And last week, this week, I I was going to continue the series. Jeff is going to do one more message in Ephesians, and then I would finish uh, at the end of... um, at the end of August, but last week, as I was reading our benediction, the end of our meeting, and I was reading from First Peter 5, I was just moved inwardly as I was reading about God's kindness in the midst of suffering, and I just felt impressed by God that I was actually supposed to preach on that passage this morning. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. This morning, I believe God wants to remind you of his love and care for you in your suffering. So the title of my message is Suffering, Grace, and Glory. Turn with me, if you would, to First Peter chapter 5. Let's read God's word together. There are a number of ways that you can parse this passage out. I'll be starting in verse 8. We we could go back as far as verse 5, but I think for our purposes this morning, it's appropriate and it would be fine biblically to start in verse 8 of chapter 5 in 1 Peter. So read along with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your church this morning, for it is your church. This is your bride who you love, who you died for, whom you care for. And I pray this morning that through your word, you would shepherd your church this morning. Lord, I pray that you would refresh your church this morning. I ask that you would encourage your church this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give hope to your church this morning, especially for those who are suffering. Father, may we all be challenged as we hear you addressing us through the written word, for that is what you are doing. And Lord, help me as as a pastor in this church just to shepherd these people well. Help me to speak. Help me to speak truthfully. Help me to speak effectively. Lord, attend to your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first became a Christian back in the 70s, it was, it was a day when 
It was, it was the Je- middle of the Jesus movement. It was exciting. There was a lot going on. And for those who are young, you wouldn't know what that movement was like. But for those of us who are older, we remember it. We remember the enthusiasm, the passion, and going out and sharing. And in all of the sharing, the gospel that I did in, in places in, uh, around this city when I was here and in other places, and those who shared with me, not once did I ever hear that suffering is normal to the Christian life. Come to Christ that you may suffer. That was not a part of the message I heard. But suffering is normal to the Christian life. In fact, in Scripture it is promised. And it is what God himself has designed specifically to transform you and me. He uses suffering. And that's not all there is to the Christian life. But it's a significant part of our lives as believers. Philippians 1, 29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Not only do you get to believe in Christ, but you have the privilege of suffering for Christ. The thing about suffering is that it's common to all Christians and it happens in every area of your life. There is no area that is exempt. I read a story a number of years ago. It's called a bricklayer's accident report. This man wrote on his accident report, this bricklayer, he said, Dear sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information in block three of the accident report form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You asked for a fuller explanation and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I found that I had some bricks left over, which, when weighed later, were found to slightly be in excess of 500 pounds. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building on the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung out the barrel, and loaded the bricks into it. And then I went down and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the bricks. You will note in block 11 of the accident report form that I weigh 175 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel, which was now proceeding downward at an equal impressive speed. This explained the fractured skull, minor abrasions, and broken collarbone as listed in section 3 of the accident report form. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope, in spite of beginning to experience a great deal of pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight. As you can imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured angles, broken tooth, and several lacerations of my legs and lower body. Here, my luck began to change slightly. The encounter with the barrel seemed to slow me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, as I lay there on the pile of bricks, in pain, unable to move, I again lost my composure and presence of mind and let go of the rope. And I lay there watching the empty barrel begin its journey back down onto me. And this explains the two broken legs. I hope this answers your inquiry. Suffering happens in many ways. And for the most part, it's never humorous. But it is the way of the kingdom of God. The Nicene Creed, which is a 
well-known creed was written during the early church days, after the New Testament church, but in the early church days. It was a group of about 300 pastors who met in the the town of Nicaea on the Black Sea, and they met because at that time there was a heresy and heretics who were eroding the truth of the gospel in the local church. And so they met to create this creed to fight what was called Arianism, which we would know as Jehovah Witnesses today. And these men met. Now, of the 300 pastors that met to, to write this creed, Roughly 90% of them showed up at that time scarred, burned, broken, all because they had been persecuted and suffered for the gospel. They suffered for their Christian faith. Peter wrote this letter specifically to comfort and strengthen the many Christians now exiled in Asia Minor who were terribly persecuted under Nero's reign. He wanted them to triumph in the face of terrible circumstances. He opens the letter, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. These are men and women who have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, who have been exiled because of their faith in Christ, and they are suffering. These exiled believers were separated from their families. They were being outcasts. They were rejected everywhere they went. They, they starved. They were sick in pain. They were living under the possibility of torture and even death. And Peter writes this letter to encourage them, to comfort them, to strengthen them to encourage you, to strengthen you, to comfort you. This letter is about suffering, it is about grace, and it is about glory. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter writes, after And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered, the God of all grace has called you to eternal glory. Yes, there's suffering, but yes, there is grace. And yes, there is an end place called glory is that place in heaven and like these ancient believers your trials and your sufferings are similar you're not far removed as you think yeah you are not being tortured and beaten for your faith i am aware of that and as you know i travel in places in asia where that does happen And it is still real to the believers in those places today. But for us, we still suffer persecution. You still suffer persecution. You still experience ridicule. You still experience mockery and rejection, ill treatment as you stand for the sake of Christ. As you stand in a society that opposes Christianity, as you stand for truth in a society that opposes traditional marriage, you stand for things that will have you persecuted. And some of you in this room have experienced that. You suffer pain in your bodies. There isn't anybody in this room who hasn't suffered pain to some degree, and some are suffering significantly more. Because you're simply human. You suffer emotional pain from loss and from tragedy, anguish and trials and sin. And as Peter writes here, you suffer from the ongoing attacks of Satan who is committed to your misery. 
In this passage, Peter makes a connection between your suffering and a formidable foe you have in an adversary called the devil. A spiritual being who is literally hell-bent on destroying your faith in Christ. He is vicious. He is powerful. He is there to terrify you, to paralyze you, and to devour you through temptation and accusation and condemnation and persecution, which all lead to suffering. Peter describes him this way. He says in verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What do you know about a lion? A lion is powerful. A lion is deadly. And if you confront a lion face to face, which I have never done and have no intentions of doing, you, you face a lion Punching him in the nose and running isn't going to work. Screaming at your loudest isn't going to work. Lay down in front of them and play dead and you will be dead. You will be his next meal. Now, if you were the friend, all you have to do is make sure you can outrun your friend and you'll be fine. But that's about the only way you're getting away from a lion. And a lion is an adversary. And when he roars, the purpose of his roar is to frighten its prey, to paralyze its prey. And that's Satan's strategy here. He prowls. He looks for someone. He seeks someone that he may devour that individual, devour them through fear, devour them as the devil is, an accuser of those who are in Christ, an accuser, a condemner, one who brings suffering, who brought suffering to Job under the sovereign permission of God, but it was this evil one, this adversary. And that is who you face. That is your enemy. That is the connection that Peter makes here. He wants you to understand that this adversary wants you to suffer. He's after your faith, especially when you struggle with things like sin. He accuses you. He condemns you. He attacks your faith that you might be shipwrecked. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, how can we tell the difference between the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is sent to convict us of our sins and the work of Satan who comes to accuse us of our sins? Both point to the same sin, but for radically different reasons. When Satan accuses of sin, it is to ruin us, to cripple and destroy us that we might suffer. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, it is to redeem and cleanse us. Satan's goal is not our redemption, but our ruin. Yeah, there is some suffering you experience because of sin. Yes, there is some suffering that you experience because of the sins of others. But Peter is making a point here in telling us, telling you that much of your suffering comes from this prowling and roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour. The weak, the weary, the discouraged, those who have been battling sickness for a long time, pain for a long time. Some things that at, when, you're, when you're aging, you realize may never go away. Or from the discouragement of family issues. Children who have gone astray, family members who are divided. From the pressures of daily living, of financial pressures, of work pressures, of things that just pile on time after time after time. It is this enemy 
that seeks to cause your suffering. But as Peter notes in this verse, it's not the end result. Suffering is not where you end. It's eternal glory is where you end. Heaven is where you end. But before glory arrives, before we get to that day, suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's just the pathway in which we walk on. It's an ancient pathway. It's a well-worn pathway that all of us have been on and all of us will be on. And Peter wants us to know, though, that it's not our final destination. (coughs) Suffering never happens, Peter tells us, without the presence of grace. Suffering never happens without the presence of grace. Think about the power of suffering. I mean, it's excruciatingly painful. It can be overwhelming. It can be fear-producing. It can be discouraging. It can be seemingly never-ending. And, and it doesn't have to be major. It can be just minor, minor thorns in the flesh, minor irritations, but it's suffering nonetheless. And even the strongest Christians are sometimes brought to their knees and to their wits end by suffering. There was a Catholic nun back in early church days who was well known for her prayer life, well known for her faith in God, but also well known for her suffering. And she struggled. She struggled with suffering. She didn't know what to make of her suffering. She battled the temptations of of why God would let her suffer. And she said this. It's a well-known quote. She said to the Lord, speaking to him as she wrote out her journal, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so many enemies. That was her struggle. That was her temptation. And Satan uses our suffering to try and draw our attention away from God and draw our attention to what is happening to us, to our circumstances. And yet somehow you do, you get through. Somehow you endure, somehow you don't quit. It's because God is the one who is faithful. It's because God is the one who gives you grace. It's because God here, as Peter writes, he is the God of all grace in verse 10. He is the God of all grace. Now, I want us to be careful about the word grace. Grace is a word that is so familiar to us. We name our children grace. We talk about grace in so many different ways. We sing about grace. We named our church Grace. Grace is everywhere. Look at the banners outside. Look at the website. I mean, it is about grace. But it is easy to forget the meaning of grace. It just becomes rote. And sometimes you're not even sure. I mean, I... I can't sleep at night unless I take a shower. That's just one of my quirks. I just, I want, I, I need to have a shower before I get mid. Even when I'm in India or I'm in Burma, I don't care where I am. I'll get a bucket. I'll take a bucket bath. I will get a shower before I go to sleep. And, and so I just have the same routine. And I've been, you know, I'm 59 years old. It's been a long routine. I keep doing this thing over and over again. And there were times now I just, I'll, I'll, I'll go through my routine and I'll get out of the shower and then I'll just be standing there thinking, did I wash my face? I don't remember. And, there, and one time I got out of the shower and there was still soap in my hair. I just forget. And we can do that with grace. We can forget the power of what grace means to us. For it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. God did a work in your life 
through grace. What, what does that mean? And what does grace mean in the midst of suffering? Because you have an adversary, a roaring lion who is seeking to devour, to, to increase your suffering. And Peter writes here that the God of all grace in the midst of this suffering, has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. What does grace mean in the midst of suffering? How does grace come to you in your suffering? Where do you get this grace when you're suffering? Well, Peter tells us three things here. He tells us there's a call of grace, there's a promise of grace, and there's a king of grace. And in verse verse 10... He writes about the call of grace and he said, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. You can't ever forget that it is by grace you have been saved. You have been called to God. You have been called to be a child of God. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you have put your trust in Christ for your eternal salvation, for your eternal hope, if you have come to faith in Him, you have heard the call of grace. And it is that call of grace that began this life of grace. Now, prior to coming to Christ, you you lived under common grace. You experienced the sunshine. You experienced the rain. You experienced the food that God provides on this earth. You experienced common grace. You experienced common grace through protection of government. You experienced common grace in different ways. But this special, particular grace, the call of God for those He has called you to His eternal glory, that call of grace, a call that you were not listening for, a call that you were not wanting to hear, a call that you were not even aware was there until God in His kindness and God in His mercy opened your ears to hear this call of grace. It would do us all well, it would do you well to on occasion rehearse who you were prior to coming to faith in Christ. It would encourage you and it could dismay you if you gave it time to think about what your life would be like today if God had not called you in grace. I have done that exercise many times throughout my life. Where would I be today if God had not called me If there had been no call of grace, who would I be? What would my family life be like? What would my marriage be like? Would I even be married? Would I have made it in marriage? And sadly, as I rehearse that and as I evaluate that, I think, I don't think I would be there. I don't think I would be here. I just, I see the consequences of the decisions that I know I most likely would have made. There is this call of grace. It is the ultimate expression of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. He called you by grace. Peter writes in chapter 1, he says that because of his great mercy to us, He has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of his great mercy, you have a God that is great in mercy who has called you to be born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ through Christ's resurrection. That is the call of grace. That you've been called to be born again to a living hope, a hope that does not end, a hope that does not fade, a hope that is imperishable, a hope that is unfading. You have been called to grace. You have been called by grace 
And you are a child of grace. Peter tells us, in your suffering, don't forget this call of grace. Don't forget that God has called you. Because it's often, it's not, it's not too often in the big in the big challenges, the big trials, the big sufferings that we're most tempted to struggle with God. It's usually in the, the daily stuff, the minor stuff. It's typically in the, the family life stuff, the work stuff, the, you know, just for me, you know, it, not that driving in traffic is suffering, though it feels like that. Or, you know, waiting in line at a supermarket behind 30 people because the folks there only want to have one person at the register in the entire store. And I get the person in front of me who wants to visit with the cashier. And I've got a cashier who just counts potatoes out by one. One potato, two potato. You know, it's just... Lots of ways. We are tempted. But there's this call of grace that has changed you. It has transformed you. Your salvation in Christ is secure because Peter writes here that he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He has secured you. There is a future hope and there is eternal hope that the suffering that you're experiencing is not for eternity that is for now and that there is an eternity with Christ that is filled with grace because he is the God of all grace listen if he has called you to glory he will get you to glory you get that If he has called you to glory, he will get you to glory. No matter how difficult, discouraging, and painful your suffering may be or how common it may be, God has not forsaken you and it's only for a little while. And I love that. I love how Peter writes that. He says here, and after you have suffered a little while. Well, who defines a little while? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? Is it a decade? Is it a lifetime? What, what is a little while? Peter would have known because he suffered and he was martyred for his faith. He would have understood. But what he understood was That it was only a little while in light of the eternal glory that Jesus had called him to because he had been called by grace. And so how we we respond to this, how does grace come to you in your suffering? It's a call first. Secondly, there's a promise of grace. Peter, here in this passage, provides a wonderful working definition of grace. I ask five people to define grace for me. Most likely, I'm either going to get the same exact response, or I'm going to get five different ones. I'm going to get, uh, it's unmerited favor from God. That's what I'm going to get. How many go home and are just wowed by that definition of unmerited favor from God? How many have that on your mirror? Unmerited favor from God. How many have it on your car when you're driving? What is grace? Unmerited favor from God. And it's true. That's what it is. But, but Peter provides a more working, active definition of grace in this passage. It's the promise of grace. Because all four of these verbs make the same point that I just mentioned. The God who called you to glory will get you to glory. And here are the four things that Peter says, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, will himself, Jesus 
himself, the God of all grace, will himself personally, powerfully, mercifully, kindly, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Are you suffering? I know if you are, I want you to, won't you understand the love of God for you right here? He has called you to himself. He has called you to eternal glory. That is the hope you have for your future. And he will, to get you there, confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you. He is the God of all grace. And that is what he is giving you here. The word restore comes from the Greek word to mend. That word Peter intimately understands in John 21, Peter experiences the restoration of a loving Savior after having denied Jesus three times. And who restores Peter? It is the Lord himself who restores him who confirms him, who strengthens him, who establishes Peter for future ministry, for the future of the church. Peter knew what the term meant, and now he uses it to speak of what God will do for each one of you. He will mend you. He will make you whole. And it says here, he will not only restore, he will confirm. God's unlimited grace stands to declare over you God's faithfulness. That in Christ, no matter how your circumstances change, your relationship to God never changes. The God who called you to glory will get you to glory. Your suffering, your temptations, even your battle with sin never compromises your position before God. It never compromises your position as a child of God. You're always His. You're always secure. Jesus has made you His own and has given you, as He says in chapter 1, Verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. He's restoring, he's confirming, and he's, he's strengthening. Grace strengthens your weakness is the very place where power is revealed. Especially when you're suffering. God delights in giving grace to you to strengthen you, to help you endure. It's his power that literally quiets the roar of the lion. It's God's power. And then he establishes you. This is an architectural word that that Peter uses here. And he's, he's talking about being established on the foundation of Christ. To be established on Christ alone. There is the call of grace. There is the promise of grace. That the God who called you to glory will get you to glory. I, you, I don't know if this is... Uh, it, the older folks are going to remember this. But when I was in elementary school... And, and even junior high school, out on the playground, they had a thing called tetherball. Do they have tetherball today? Does that even exist anymore? It does. Wow. Some ancient things remain. And so, so we would play tetherball all through elementary school. And you know tetherball. It's this ball. It's tied to a string, tied to a pole. And the, the goal is to whack it as hard as you can and, and get it to go all the way around and get a point. And, you, you know, you're fighting back and forth whacking it. I want you to know something about tetherball. You know, no matter how hard you hit the tetherball, it stays on the string. No matter how hard you're hit in suffering, you never are separated from Christ. You may feel like a tetherball. You may feel like you're being whacked back and forth and zipping up the pole, but you are never untethered from God. The God who called you to glory 
will get you to glory. He will do it through grace by restoring you, confirming you, strengthening you, and establishing you because he has called you. He has called you to himself. There's the call of grace. There's the promise of grace. And finally, there's the king of grace. Look at verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Now, this is kind of a bookend for this passage because in verse 8, Peter begins by talking about being sober-minded and watchful because you have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion. You have this picture of this, this strong and dangerous and deadly foe who can destroy you, who can, who has the power when you're talking about a lion has the power to devour you. And yet at the end, Peter says, let, let me put it in right perspective. There is the king of grace who has dominion forever and ever. Amen. This roaring lion, this adversary, this devil who does create suffering under the sovereign permission of God, who does suffer, cause you to suffer. He is under the power of God. He is not more powerful than God. In fact, he is nothing compared to God in your life. You have a king of grace who is the God of all grace. And when you suffer, he is there with you. He is the God, right here in verse 10, will himself restore you. It is Jesus who is there restoring you. This is a doxology. This is a song of praise. This verse 11 that Peter is adoring God. It is a song of adoration and praise to him be dominion forever and ever. He is the only one who has dominion and he will have dominion through all eternity. There is no end to God's reign. There is no end to his dominion, which means there is no end to his love for you and his grace given to you. Are you suffering now? It is only for a while. In fact, it is only for a little while. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, Jesus himself, will restore you, confirm you, strengthen and establish you. The very presence of the one who died for you on a cross to save you from the judgment of God for your sins. The very one who was a substitute. The very one who suffered. The very one who rose from the dead. He himself will give you grace because he is the God of all grace. Are you suffering now? Grace is there and it is restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you. Because it is God's ultimate plan in his wisdom and in his love. It is his ultimate plan that he has called you to glory. He will get you to glory. Now, Peter began this section in verse 8, speaking about a powerful adversary who causes your suffering. And he is well acquainted with, with suffering, as is the audience he's written to. But he's more acquainted with grace and power and promise in his life. But this adversary does exist. He is real. And he wants you to know, Peter wants us to know that our suffering is not in vain. It is not random. It is not punishment. It is lovingly and wisely designed to bring you to God. But your response to suffering cannot be passive. You cannot be passive in response to suffering. You can't create grace for yourself. You can't strengthen yourself. You can't confirm yourself. You can't restore yourself. You can't establish yourself. So what do you do if you're not but being passive? 
but you can't be passive. Well, Peter helps us in how we're not to be passive. He says, be sober-minded and watchful of this adversary. Now, Peter, I think, is undoubtedly thinking back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, listen, you stay here and pray and I am going over here to pray. And Peter and and John are there and, and Jesus comes back and what does he find? They're asleep. And Jesus challenges them and admonishes them to be watchful. In prayer. And, and, and I think that is what is behind here. He is thinking back to the garden when he was supposed to be praying and fell asleep. He was not ready for battle. And battle is what we face from this formidable adversary. If we're not watchful, if you are not watchful, Peter writes, you will be a casualty. You can be devoured. But you won't be devoured. Because we have a God who will not let you be devoured. But you need to be watchful. There is no passivity here. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Don't just ignore this enemy. Be sober-minded. But don't be overwhelmed by this enemy. Don't be preoccupied by this, this enemy. Just be aware of this enemy. Secondly, in verse 9, he tells us how we're not to be passive. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Your faith in Christ. Your faith in the power of God. Your faith in the dominion of God who, has, who is restoring and confirming and strengthening and establishing you. Remain firm in your faith. It means we can resist. James tells us that when we resist the devil, he flees. Verse 10, also, not being passive, remember that your suffering is only for a little while. You've got to see it in light of eternity. In light of the eternal glory you've been called to. I mean, you know, you know my story. I, I've had migraine headaches since I was five years old. I get them almost daily. It's a part of my life. I'm 59, and I remember being told, well, when you get into your 50s, they're going to disappear. And the only thing that happened in my 50s is my hair got thinner, my eyes got worse, and I still have headaches. <laughs> so What? There's an eternal glory that awaits me. Where I'm going to have a full head of hair, good eyes, no headaches, and a perfect golf swing. (laughs) This suffering is only for a short time. And in verse 10, understand that your sufferings are not unique. How many times have you thought, nobody understands what I'm going through? Nobody understands. This, is, this, uh, this temptation is so unique. No one in the world, no one in history has ever experienced what I'm experiencing right now. Really? Really? No. It's not unique. And and you have a brotherhood, a brotherhood throughout the world who has suffered like you have suffered. And others are suffering more than you are suffering. And you are to be connected with them. and, and, And in this church, you have a brother and sisterhood that has suffered like you have suffered. And it is to connect us together as a church family. Suffering is meant to, to, in a sense, draw us together, not drive us apart. We identify with one another. We care for one another. We love one another. We serve one another. We bear one another's burdens. We help one another in the midst of suffering. And you have done that well here. And I want us to continue to do that well. Suffering is not unique. 
So don't give in to self-pity believing that no one knows what you're going through. Don't give in to despair believing that God has forgotten you. Don't give in to the lies of this adversary that no one cares about you. We do care. God cares for you. Suffering has a purpose. Let me tell you what that purpose is. It keeps you dependent upon the grace of God. And it transforms you into the image of Christ. That's why you suffer. It keeps you dependent upon the grace of God. And it transforms you into the image of Christ. That one day you will stand in eternal glory. And you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. John Bunyan, who wrote the most read book other than the Bible in history, Pilgrim's Progress, was a man who suffered much. John Bunyan was in prison, away from his family, for his faith in Christ. And this is what he wrote. He said, I have never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never while in this world be able to express. Being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be molested, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all. Insomuch that I often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. John Bunyan found Christ's grace in the midst of horrific prison circumstances. I want you to find Christ in the midst of your suffering. I want you to know that you have a God who loves you, who is the God of all grace, and who himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you because he has called you to his eternal glory. He who called you to his glory will get you to his glory because he is the king of grace.